Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hareska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS, and your host for this episode. And I am thrilled to be joined today by Ellie Mistall. If you listen to our final episode of 2021, what just happened, summing up 2021, then you've heard Ellie mentioned on the podcast before and are hopefully already following him on social media. Because if you're not, I only have one question. What are you waiting for? And let me just say, any day is a good day to talk to Ellie. But I'm particularly interested in something he said recently on Twitter. And that is, you either control the Supreme Court or you control nothing. Now, that statement could be referring to several of the topics that we've already discussed on this podcast, whether it be reproductive rights, labor rights, or voting. But it also calls out just the raw political reality of today's Supreme Court and how it's reshaping the country in so many respects. So this seemed like a great opportunity to talk to Ellie, less about individual issues and more about the court itself and what's driving its decisions, because it's definitely not precedent. For those who don't already know Ellie, he is the nation's legal analyst and justice correspondent, an Alfred Nobler fellow at the Type Media Center, and the legal editor of the More Perfect podcast on the Supreme Court for Radiolab. He is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, the former executive editor of Above the Law, a former associate at Deba Boys and Plimpton, and a frequent guest on MSNBC and Sirius XM. He is also the author of the upcoming book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. The book can be pre-ordered now and will be available starting March 1st, and you can bet that I have already pre-ordered it. Ellie, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you so much for having me, Jeannie. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I am thrilled to have this chance to chat with you at length. We often get snippets of you on MSNBC, but this is a chance to do a longer conversation that I'm excited about. Yeah, I might have more than 90 seconds to make a point. Nuance, here we go. <laughs> I'm excited. All right, I want to start with what I mentioned in the intro, which is your statement on Twitter, because all great things get said on Twitter these days. You either control the Supreme Court or you control nothing. Now, in a system with three branches of government, that statement seems to speak volumes about the constitutional crisis in which we find ourselves. So tell us what you meant by that. Yeah. So first of all, let's start here. Alexander Hamilton, great guy, apparently he could rap great musical. That, was completely wrong about the Supreme Court. Hamilton and his boys said that the Supreme Court, the, the judicial branch, would be the least dangerous branch of government. And maybe it was in 1787. But by 1802, by the time that Chief Justice John Marshall called upon himself the power of judicial review, the Supreme Court from that day became the most dangerous branch of government. And basically the first 250 years have just been kind of waiting for that time bomb to go off, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the Supreme Court, for the most part, has been restrained. I say for the most part, not always. We could talk about Dred Scott, right? You know, that the Supreme Court kind of also started the Civil War. But hey, let's not <laughs> let's let bygones be bygones. From 1802, the court has had a veto power over the other two branches of government. It's not a check. It's not a balance. It's a veto on Congress, and it's a veto on the president, on, on the executive branch. And people don't understand, I think most Americans don't understand, how ridiculously overpowered our court is. 
if you look at just across the world stage, you don't see other high courts with the ability to simply veto acts of the representative bodies and certainly veto acts of the representative bodies over their objection. Because think of it this way. If the president vetoes a bill, Congress can go back and, you know, by two thirds majority vote, override the president's veto. If John Roberts vetoes a bill, if Neil Gorsuch vetoes a bill, where's the two thirds majority? There is none. It's so just, let me ask it's you this. gone now. I completely agree with you that we have a very uniquely supreme court compared to other democracies. And I actually want to touch upon that. But let me ask you this, because this is, I feel like, the checks and balances question. In theory, the court is supposed to have a check on the other two branches, right? That's that is built into the design. Each branch gets to check the other two. But what you're saying is the court has. a a stronger veto over the other two branches than they have over the court, right? So in theory, according to theoretical design, the court issues a decision that the other two branches disagree with. They pass a bill that corrects that decision. Why is that not working? Because the current Supreme Court, controlled as it is by conservative ideologues, does not allow, does not respect the acts of Congress. If you were to say to me, like, all Congress has to do is to pass a bill, and then they can get, the, and then the Supreme Court has to listen to it, then what would you say if I told you that Congress did pass a bill by voice vote? And that bill was, in the Senate, 96 to, like, zero, 96 and a few abstentions. And that bill was signed by a president of a different party than the Congress that passed the bill. So you've got this bipartisan voice vote, 96 senators, um, Republican president signing a bill. Shouldn't the Republican Supreme Court? But you would think that that would be okay, right? But no, because in 2013, Chief Justice John Roberts, by a vote of five to four, said that that bill, which happened to be the Voting Rights Act, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that bill was unconstitutional. For the first time, there was no precedent for that. I mean, the Voting Rights Act, very old bill. No, no Supreme Court has said before that it was unconstitutional, but John Roberts, with no precedent over the express will of Congress and the executive branch, the overwhelming bipartisan near unanimity, I'm sure I said that wrong, but let's pretend I didn't, um, of the two chambers of Congress, vetoed the Voting Rights Act. So that that that's why I say we we've got a much deeper problem, right? And, and you can go you can go through so many laws. You you can look at the the recent vaccine mandate case where again a president was elected on a mandate to keep people safe from COVID. I mean, whatever you think about Biden's mandate and how strong it was, certainly that people were dying from COVID was a big part of the reason why that man is president. Yeah. We'll talk about the vaccine mandate because I want to get at the administrative state. But I, going back to voting, I'm so glad you brought that up because we have a voting rights crisis in this country because of the Supreme Court. And I don't think that that is said enough. People look at the voter suppression laws being passed by the states, but those laws are possible because the Supreme Court gutted the VRA. And it's just let, let's remember, like we this is the second voting rights crisis in American history brought to us by the Supreme Court. Right. This is the right. second experience in political apartheid brought to us by conservatives on the Supreme Court. Today, they call themselves Republicans. 
in an earlier time, they called themselves Democrats. I don't care what the conservatives call themselves on a particular day. They're conservatives, right? And if we go back to after the Civil War, we fought a war. We had some amendments. One of those amendments was the 15th, which said that you couldn't discriminate in voting on the basis of race. And the Supreme Court ignored it for 100 years. And that was a constitutional amendment. That wasn't just a statute. That was in the Constitution. I'm not making that up, folks. They ignored it. They treated it like a suggestion. They treated it like it was in the suggestion box at Applebee's and threw it away for 100 years. So then finally, finally, people march and die and ride buses and cross bridges and, you know, literally blood, sweat and tears. And we finally get a Voting Rights Act. I have said for a long time, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is the single most important piece of legislation in American history. It is the only piece of legislation that ever made real the promises of the 15th Amendment and therefore is the only piece of legislation that ever made real the victory of the Civil War. I think the Voting Rights Amendment Act is pretty important. We finally get the Voting Rights Act. It works. It works. It until until to do Chief until, Justice John Roberts until 2013, yeah. and John Roberts declares victory over over racism in the South and guts. He gets the formula. He gets Section Four, which established the preclearance formula, which then rendered Section Five inoperative, and then. Let's not forget last summer, because, you know, we, we I talk a lot about 2013, but let's not forget 2021, where Roberts in now in cahoots with Sam Alito got Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, essentially overturning the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. And basically, you know, Alito straight out writes that being just a little bit racist yep. in your voter suppression laws, that's not unconstitutional. You can be a little bit racist. Who determines? Whether you're a little or a lot racist, oh, Sam Alito determines whether you're a little Well, and I, we also need to throw in a couple other decisions. We have blatant gerrymandering happening right now because the Supreme Court said it's okay to to draw maps that explicitly favor some over well, others. I've argued, and, and you know, pe- people are surprised when I say this, because for reasons passing my understanding, John Roberts has like the the easiest ride in the media. He's always portrayed as this kind of centrist, honest broker in the media. A recent poll found that John Roberts was the only federal official that was above water with both Democrats and Republicans. I, I do not understand that. John Roberts is the chief architect mm-hmm. of the current assault on democracy. Yes. It's not Mitch McConnell. It's not Donald Trump. It is John Roberts. Citizens United, Shelby County v. Holder, Rucho, Brnovich, these are the cases that have allowed Republicans to push the big lie and and question integrity in our elections. That's why this is happening. It's not an accident. It's a choice made by Roberts primarily. And I'm so glad you're saying this. Who the... If yeah. people don't understand what we're fighting, we'll never win. We'll never win unless people understand what we're fighting. And we're yeah. not we're fighting John Roberts's interpretation of yeah. whether or not the federal government has any say in how yeah. elections are run in this country. Well, your 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 point also gets at what I often feel is missed in this conversation, which is we're in a legal crisis. Like people think of this as a partisan issue or a cultural issue. It is a legal crisis Mm. that we are in, right? Like our laws are being reshaped, redrawn, rewritten before our very eyes. 
And I don't think there's enough attention paid to that of like, this is not just the two parties not getting along. It is the entire legal infrastructure of our country being rewritten by five, maybe six justices, meaning five or six people. Yep. Not all of whom should be there. (laughs) And none of whom were elected. Like none of whom were elected. Yeah. I mean, so it is, we have a, we have a Supreme court that has been designed to be politically predictable. That is why it is filled the way it is right now. Hey, look, Souter hurt their feelings, right? Like, like David Souter and, and, and Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, he really hurt Republican Felix because they thought they had enough votes to stop Roe back in 1993. And they did it because Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, David Souter didn't go for it. And instead of killing Roe in 1993 like they intended to, we got Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which, by the way, took away a lot of reproductive rights. Yes. I mean, I, 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 hate, I hate the narrative that, like, Roe was saved by Planned Parenthood. <laughs> Planned Parenthood v. Casey is, yeah. in a rational world, an awful decision. But yes. it didn't go the whole hog. It didn't go all the way. Didn't it go didn't all the way up to 11 Roe to overturn Roe yeah. v. Wade and let the states decide when women should be forced to bear children or not. That did, didn't go all the way that there. And so Republicans kind of never got over it. And they, you know, Republicans like to say that they began their current crusade to take over the court in 1987 when Robert Bork uh, was denied a seat on the Supreme Court. But the causes belli is not Robert Bork. It's 1993. Yeah. It's Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And it's conservatives trying to figure out how to engineer, how to create, right. like in a test tube, justices that would reliably vote for the Republican agenda. Right. And it just so happened that at the same time, the Feller Society was getting go going and like, we, we, we got away. It'll, it'll, it'll take a long time, but we can get them in law school and we can we yeah. can teach them. Well, and that's they knew then what you said on Twitter. Right. They knew then that if they could control the Supreme Court, checkmate, that, that's it. That's all they needed. If you control the Supreme Court, you get to design the law in this country. Full stop. It's particularly useful for for a party like the Republicans that have generally unpopular ideas. You can't win a straight up argument to take away the right to vote. I know that because Ronald Reagan couldn't win it. Ronald Reagan started his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That's Mississippi burning for those playing along at home. He said in his campaign that the Voting Rights Act humiliates the South. But in 1982, um, man signed the amendment because because politically... It was untenable to be against voting rights back in the halcyon days of the 80s, right? The Republicans have terrible points that people don't agree with. People support a woman's right to choose. People support voting rights. People are against dark money in campaigns. Republicans cannot win these arguments fairly at the ballot box. So going to the branch of government that is unelected, unaccountable, and for the most part unknown, makes a lot of sense for them and that's that's what yeah. we did that's why we're here it yeah it is fundamentally about power if you can't get to a political end with the legislative branch well we'll just do it with the judicial branch so i want to talk now about a almost a more nefarious attack on government and you mentioned this when you talked about the vaccine or test decision that came down so 
you've written recently that the court thinks that they have the votes, which let's be honest, they do. And therefore the power to quote, neuter the executive branch. And this is, this is not a checks and balances approach by the, by the court, right? This is an intentional and strategic assault on an entire branch of government. Talk me through this. How is, how is the court, how are the conservative justices on the court going about kneecapping the executive? Why was Neil Gorsuch the first person out of the gate for these people, right? Like after the Merrick Garland fiasco debacle, whatever, you could have made an argument that that was a great time to have a more centrist, a more, you know, a Republican still, you know, a Ryan Kethledge kind of guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could have made a perfect argument for that. But no, they fired first Neil Gorsuch. Why? Because Gorsuch has the full on nihilist theory about administrative power that basically it shouldn't exist. And it feels when you try to, to to explain this to people, I mean, you can. I, I've done this before, Jeannie. Like their eyes glaze over. I'm like nobody wants to hear about. Shit well, you, 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 yeah. I was going to say, you say the word administrative, and it right. just sounds painful. It sounds procedural, right? Nobody wants to hear yep. about Chevron deference. Nobody wants to hear about administrative law. Like, come on. I was so, going to say, so, I'm going to stop you and actually make you define administrative state. <laughs> because it is so bureaucratic and painful at times, but like this it's, is again, the government is being redesigned before our very eyes. We need to know this. What are all, we talking about? All the executive agencies, all of them, right? So, like, you've got your Congress, which is a bunch of like randos they pulled out of a hat who like were able to like rile up the crowd at the county fair and now you're a congressman good job like that's congress right you got the president who's like you know a celebrity or like however we pick our presidents you know we're basically you know one step removed from like american idol you know just voting on our our, our phones like oh my god he has he's the real mass singer i mean like that's where we are with the president it's pretty pathetic but then you have the executive agencies. And these people are supposed to be the experts like the CDC or the EPA or OSHA or the Department of Justice or, you know, all or the Department of Defense, all of these executive agencies, right? Staffed by people who are there for decades because they're experts and have institutional knowledge. For the most part, staffed by people who are not, the tops are always political appointees, but really, you know, the the meat of that organization is longtime career civil servants who do not change based on the administration. And they're supposed to provide, from my perspective, the, the intellectual expertise for the rulemaking and lawmaking that Congress and the president do. They actually govern like when we when we talk about governing as opposed to politicking, it's the agencies that truly govern. Republicans have had a long standing desire to weaken the administrative state, to neuter the administrative state. And that comes through all Republicans. That's not just Trump Republicans. That, that, I mean, that that's is, that's one of the most fundamental differences, right, between the two right, parties is big government, small government. That binds a Reagan judge and a Bush 41 judge and a W judge and a Trump judge is this antipathy towards the administrative state. That's that's what towards government. Yeah. And that's what they finally have the votes to. It's why the it's also why I should point out it's why the Democrats and liberals are always fighting kind of an asymmetrical war here. Right. Because all Republicans want to do is come in and smash this. All they want to do is come in and break things down. I've got two kids, right? I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And now they're kind of close. This analogy doesn't work as well now. But like when I had like a six-year-old and a three-year-old, this is really where it was, right? Where like a six-year-old would build Lego sets, right? And the three-year-old would come and kick them because... (laughs) 
Because that's what three-year-olds do. Right? And kick the Lego set and, and run away and go kick something. And my, my six-year-old was sitting there like crying because now he's got to rebuild the whole darn Lego set. And that, that so my six-year-old in that analogy, yeah. that's Democrats. And the three-year-old in that yeah. analogy is Republicans. And it's asymmetrical because all the Republicans need is to break yeah. things and they've won. Yeah. So breaking in this instance, we have the greatest global pandemic of our generation of the modern era of, you know, choose, choose your statement. And we know that the single greatest way to combat it right now are vaccines, masking, testing. So lo and behold, OSHA issues a vaccine or test requirement. And the court does what? Which, which should be good under any theory of law except for the Republican one, which is that the administrative state and the federal government should have no power. There are a couple of things. And not just over the the pandemic, we should say. Like, this is just an opportunity to pursue what they've wanted to, which is just to stop regulations, period. One of the things that I've been trying to say to people to to understand the 6-3 decision um, striking down the OSHA mandate is that this is not because conservatives on the court are anti-vax. It really isn't. They're all vaxxed. I was going to say, they are following CDC <laughs> guidelines. Maybe not Gorsuch all the time, but the rest of them are. Well, even Gorsuch. I mean, think about it, the, the hypocrisy really, really did get me during the arguments. The Supreme Court requires their workers to be vaxxed or tested. And I know that because during the arguments over the OSHA mandates, two of the Republican lawyers couldn't be in the courtroom because they tested positive for covid on a test they were forced to take by the court. So it's so it's literally like the justices were sitting there ensconced in the protection from the vaccine that they were unwilling to extend to the American worker. I don't like if, if more Americans understood that, I believe yeah. there would be such outrage, but most people don't understand that. And so again, here we but are. But what do you see as the like it struck down the the vaccine or test mandate, which is bad, but it's the it's reading the tea leaves of this decision that it, that's particularly scary. Like this is it's this this is Gorsuch and the conservative court making very clear what their overall intention is. It's hard for me after that decision to figure out what administrative rule will pass muster right. through this court if it's sufficiently challenged by Republicans. Because here again, when you want to talk about hypocrisy, Neil Gorsuch, Neil freaking Gorsuch, who is so up his own backside with his originalism that I swear to God, he will go back to the freaking lunch menu at the Constitutional Convention to find some justification for his legal reasoning. But he sat up there during the vaccine mandates case and he criticized congressional grants of authority to OSHA to legislate just this kind of thing because that grant of authority was 50 years old. Mm. And it's of all the people to care that the law was too old, Neil Gorsuch does not get to say that. But again, this is nothing to do. That's why people need to understand. This has nothing to do with principle. Or the actual facts of the case, it right? Like this with, is seizing upon nothing, a case. It has nothing to do with principle. It has nothing to do with the scary, life-threatening pandemic that we are all trying to survive. This has everything to do with their longstanding ideological goals to mm-hmm. neuter the administrative state. They're so hot to one day 
basically make the EPA unconstitutional, that they were literally willing to let more workers get sick and potentially die from COVID in real time. That was a price they were willing to pay for their long-term goals. Well, and this is this again, I I just so love the statement you've said on Twitter, because this goes back to that of like having the Supreme Court or nothing. So the Supreme Court says you can't issue these regulations based on the design of government. The two other branches go, OK, and write a new law, issue a new regulation to remedy the court's decision. But if the court says, no, no, it's not just this regulation you can't do, you literally can't regulate There is no comeback to that. There's no way for the executive branch to check that power of the court. Yep. If the court's going to say that anything the executive does is unconstitutional, the executive can't be that. That's that's ballgame. That's That's it. I was going to say that we can all go home. We're done. And it's something, and again, it's something the Democrats, I don't think, sufficiently understand and sufficiently appreciate. It's like this, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're talking, Gene, I don't know when this is going to air, but we're talking in the aftermath and the backwash of the complicity of, of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema towards white supremacy. And as as hurt, hurt as I am about the failure of voting rights and, and as much kind of smoke I would have in the Democratic Party for not kind of taking it seriously or trying harder with it, it was always a losing battle. Because of the Supreme Court. Because of the Supreme Court. The Freedom to Vote Act would not have been approved by John Roberts. The court that that, that overruled, that that gutted the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County and gutted the Voting Rights Act in Brnovich was not going to, to uphold the Freedom to Vote Act. The court does not believe that the federal government can stop the states from being racist. That's That's as simple a way to put it as any, right? The court does not believe that the federal government can stop the states from being racist in voting. It just doesn't. And so anything the federal government tries to do, you get your 50 yeah. votes, you get your 51 votes, you nuke the filibuster, anything the Democrats try to do, the court will just yeah. say, you can't do that. The whole point of passing the Voting Rights Act was political, was for Biden and the Democrats to show the black and brown voters that put them in power that they care. It wasn't to actually fix voting rights because to fix voting rights, you have to fix the six conservatives on the court. And there was nothing in the Freedom to Vote Act that was going to do that. Yeah. If the court's willing to gut the Voting Rights Act, which, like you said, is one of the most historic pieces of legislation ever. If they're willing to gut that, (laughs) they're not going to think twice about gutting the latest. There's an argument that I hear from liberally aligned lawyers all the time that the, the way to deal with Robert's Shelby Robert's issue in Shelby County was the formula that some states were right. singled out, but not other states, right? So the way to right. fix it. If you if you update the formula, then John update the Roberts formula won't to make every state to make every state yeah. under coverage, John Roberts wouldn't have a problem with it. Have you met John Roberts? Have you met yeah. Sam Alito? They're not going to have a problem with the federal government saying that every single state in the union, regardless of their historical background, must submit their election laws to the federal government for pre-approval? Have you met these people? No, that's not going to be constitutional according to them. No, no, bro. Yeah, again, this is a legal crisis created by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the problem. So here... Here's my question to you. We're going to talk Supreme Court reform because that's obviously where we're heading. But how do you push back against those who say your objection to the court is simply that you disagree with the outcome? 
that this isn't some sort of constitutional disagreement. This is just a partisan disagreement that if if they if these six justices were so staunchly supportive of your position instead of Mitch McConnell's positions, you wouldn't be complaining right now. I say yes, yes, of course. I, I, I disagree with the outcomes. The Supreme Court is outcome determinative. And if we're going to have an outcome determinative Supreme Court, well, then I would like my outcomes to be representative in that Supreme Court because more people agree with me than the other guys. That's a legitimacy issue, right? Then right? That, like, if, if you're going to have a court that sides on one side or the other, then it should side with a majority of the American people. It if should reflect the public. If you're going to have a court with the outsized power to veto the elective branches of government, then that court must be representative of the people, which it is not. It must be accountable to the people in some way, which it is not. And yes, it should be reflective overall of the will of the people, which it is not. If we were going to have a court that just was limited in scope and kind of only arbitrated kind of fights between the branches, right? So the true like executive versus legislative branch fight and the Supreme Court just picks a winner and a loser, that's one thing. But if we're going to have the Supreme Court with the independent power to veto both branches. The popularly elected branches. Both popularly elected branches. Well, then that court must needs be more representative of the people or else it's illegitimate or else we don't have a democracy. We have a justocracy. Well, and and this is where ACS comes in is in our minds, we don't have a legitimate Supreme Court. That's the problem is that we have a court that is facing a legitimacy crisis, which means every decision it hands down suffers from that same legitimacy crisis, in part because this court has been politically designed. It has been packed to do exactly what it is doing. So. There's also the argument, I think, like, this is a a tougher needle for me to thread. But part of my argument is also, look, there are people who disagree with me about, you know, Mm -hmm. fundamental issues about tax policy and the capital gains rate and whatever. And and those issues, we should we should have them out in the marketplace of ideas and hash them out. And, you know, winners win and losers like, you know, take it on the chin and live to fight another day. There can be no meaningful debate about whether or not I'm a person. Right. There can be no meaningful debate about whether or not women are people. Yeah, these aren't policy issues. These are like legal rules. They're actually changing the rules of the game. So if the Supreme Court is now at the point where it is taking personhood rights away from people, if it is taking the rights to participate in the polity away from people well then yes the outcomes that supreme court is is producing are illegitimate to me and must be changed would i have the same problem if the supreme court was expanding rights or at least protecting the rights that we already have no i wouldn't because i I get to be a person again Yeah, I do think there is something here where you can be outcome, you can have preferred outcomes when your outcomes are in support of constitutional rights. The whole mission of the court is to uphold the Constitution and to uphold constitutional rights. When the court makes clear it doesn't care about that anymore, when it's going to overturn Roe, it's going to eliminate the constitutional right to abortion, it's going to fling the door open to voter suppression, it is no longer fulfilling its constitutional role. 
I say all the time that, you know, I talk about this a lot in the media where I don't see the problem with the media being objectively pro-democracy. Right. That, like that's, that's not too much to ask, right? You don't want to be pro-Republican or Democrat. I understand that. Be pro-democracy. Yeah. The rest will work out. So like, I would say the same thing to the court, right? Be pro-human and the rest will work out. Yeah. Be pro-democracy. Be pro-rule of law and the rest will work out. So far, they're not. Thanks for finding Broken Law, the podcast of the progressive legal movement. Join the movement today by becoming a member of the American Constitution Society. We are a diverse nationwide network of progressive lawyers, students, judges, elected officials, voters, and advocates working together to advance progressive legal values and ensure the law is a force for improving the lives of all people. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member of the progressive legal movement. Our laws and legal systems impact us all. Join ACS today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. I want to touch upon something here. I want to get back to Supreme Court reform, but first talking about you as a person and whether the courts view you as a person. So the conservative legal movement hasn't just had its eyes on the Supreme Court, right? They they spend the Trump administration packing the lower courts with very staunchly conservative white men, overwhelmingly white men. And during the judicial nominee hearings for, for many of those nominees, Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee would frequently ask whether Brown v. Board of Education was properly decided. If there is a question that warrants a simple yes, you would think that would be it. And yet many of the nominees actually refused to answer the question directly. And one nominee went as far as to say that answering the question would be a, quote, slippery slope. And that nominee now has a lifetime seat on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana. So I want to talk about this like judicial trend. We're talking about the Supreme Court, but the same dynamics are in play in the lower courts, which hear drastically more cases every year than the Supreme Court does. Yep. I write about this in my book. It's a huge problem. And it's particularly problematic to me because when I see a, a young conservative person not able to answer the Brown v. Board of Ed question correctly, right. I get particularly scared because that idiot, it's like the guy who downloads the app, the FedSoc app, but doesn't know how to make it work. Because that's a softball question for an actual FedSoc member, right? Like that is like that Brown v. Board of Ed, you can make an originalist defense for Brown v. Board of Ed without trying too hard if you simply understand that your own snake oil. Scalia has made the originalist defense for Brown v. Board of Ed, right? You, you wrap your arms around the Justice Harlan dissent in Plessy. You wrap your arms around the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. You wrap your arms around the Civil Rights Act of 1868, 18, 1873, and you get it done. Like Brown v. Board of Ed is not hard to defend. Loving is hard to defend for these people. <laughs> right when we when we right. talk about the, the the case that ended discrimination in marriage uh, on interracial marriage loving right. is hard for originalists to spend because there's no original public meaning of the 14th right. amendment that's that that allowed for interracial marriages no that them white boys were scared yeah. of that right in 1867 right so 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 that's how you get those people and so when you see a conservative justice who can't even answer the brown question right what they're saying is that it's not a slippery slope into it's a slippery slope into that guy having to admit his own racism is what that is. Yeah. 
And they're cool with that. The Republican Party, the Feller Society, they are cool with putting people yeah. on the court who believe in a antebellum understanding of our constitution and our laws. And a, and are now getting to decide our laws. That that's that's a problem. And I, you know, I by virtue of going to law school, I am showing my own bias as fundamentally an institutionalist, right? Yes. Like people can call me not an institutionalist, but like no nobody goes through yeah. three years of legal training without fundamentally believing in institutions yeah. and the rule of law and the importance of, of judicial a precedent, right? I mean, precedent. law school and, is nothing but three years of memorizing precedent. And judicial and judicial like deference, right? Right. But at some point when they put enough white supremacist judges on the courts, like at some point, the entire third branch of government becomes illegitimate. And that's a scary point. You know, that, and, that's yeah. a, that, that's a scary time because the problem, the, the problem with those above the rule of law is that you don't have it to protect you. But that's the crisis that they themselves are forcing on us. Right. Because there, and, there's. Yeah. Because there's only there's only so much white supremacy that people will take as legitimate before before they stop according to those yeah. institutions with the deference and respect that we would like them to deserve. And I, I think the anxiety you mentioned is real, right? I I can't recall like the number of conversations I had pre twenty twenty where the the final end of the conversation was, well, at least we have the courts, right? At least the court will strike it down if it gets that far. Like whatever the crazy conspiracy theory is, like, well, the Supreme Court would never allow that to happen. We're getting to a point where like reliance on the Supreme Court to protect the guardrails of democracy is is a false sense of security. And I said, then I said what? Yeah, I said during during the during the the legal cases for the big lie during the 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 Giuliani kind of uh, mm-hmm. landscape uh, phase of <laughs> of the big lie that I had confidence in the courts because throwing out votes that have already been counted is very different than not allowing those votes to be counted at all. Yeah. And what the Republicans basically the clown coup was late. Trump and Giuliani, they were trying to get the court to throw away votes that had already been logged and counted. Courts were never going to do that. What Republicans understand now is that we have to make those votes not counted at all. And the Mm -hmm. courts will allow them to, the Republican courts at least, will allow them to do that. That's why they're stacking secretaries of state offices with big lie conservatives. That's why they have the state courts already packed. That's why they have the lower courts already packed. So that by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, we're not going to be, it's the Bush v. Gore problem, right? We're not going to be debating about whether or not the votes we have logged are legitimate. We're going to be debating about whether or not other votes that have been illegitimately excluded should be re-included. And from Bush v. Gore, we already know the Republicans are absolutely willing to continue to exclude votes that have not yet been counted. Yeah. And this one of the themes of this podcast over and over again is courts matter. We're trying so hard to get our listeners to to think as much about the courts as they do about Congress. And I think this conversation has just underscored it. If you care about democracy and the outcome of our legal existence, Congress is almost the least of your concerns. It is the courts where the fate of this democracy may get decided. Dude, it's my entire it's my entire career at this point, right? Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I I'm on I'm on networks where like they will put people on the TV to talk about 
how they saw Nancy Pelosi have lunch with Abigail Spanberger and what does that mean and devote like a 10 minute segment to it. But they, they won't talk about like actual opinions that are being released by the third branch of government. It's really hard to get people to, to just lock in. And and yeah. focus on this this branch that that you know as we've been saying is functionally the most powerful. Yeah, it can't make war. Okay, I get it, but like it can it, it can stop. But unanimous, domestically, like, unanimous <laughs> unanimous agreement from both yeah. parties and the president, the court could still just be like, nah, nah, we're not going to do that today, and nobody can tell them boo. Like they're they're yeah. so overpowered and so underreported. So I, I want to go back to just one more thing that I, I we have to talk about with regards to judges. And that is the exchange that happened last week. So, you know, Democrats have seemed to learn that the courts matter and they are trying really hard to fill federal court vacancies. And to President Biden's credit, he is prioritizing the diversity of candidates, right? He has nominated overwhelmingly candidates of color, female candidates, but his judicial nominees are hitting a very nefarious type of resistance in the Senate. And I want to get your thoughts about one incident in particular. So last week during a confirmation hearing for Andre Mathis, a Black nominee for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, multiple Republican senators brought up three traffic tickets, all a decade or more old. And Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee went so far as to refer to the tickets as a rap sheet a rap sheet for a like what all, all of those republicans voted for to confirm brett kavanaugh who was credibly accused of attempted rape to say nothing of being credibly accused of having gambling problems and credibly accused of perjury multiple times in front of congress all of them voted for brett kavanaugh look this is what african-american candidates have always faced when it comes to judicial nominations this is what latino candidates face when it comes to nominations there's always this kind of pushback it's always ugly it's always i felt bad for mathis because mathis felt bad like if yeah. you if you when yeah. you watch the clip i felt so bad for that man because he was sorry about his speeding tickets and he was trying to explain them and I, man i would mm, nominate oh my god nominate me for something oh my god just 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 let me just give me eight <laughs> just hours give you a confirmation here in front of that here in front of that committee i won't get confirmed that's fine with me but like give me those eight hours man oh i would i would not have been so apologetic about my parking tickets to marsha blackburn the but, contrast but, between like nominees not being able to say whether brown v board of education was properly decided but going after a candidate and and but the other problem here and and slightly more serious and i again i think biden's done generally a very very good job with what nominees mitch mcconnell left him so that's great but i I think he's generally done a very good job but but it also makes for a very particular kind of non-white person who can get one of these jobs right because unlike the white people Unlike the white men who can just have all kinds of just, yeah. just skeletons just just falling out the closet, right? The 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 black and brown people uh, have to be so squeaky clean because you have to be angelic yeah. because these these people like Blackburn they will find anything, right? And so like it really winnows the acceptable or allowable candidates, and some of our you know best candidates kind of can't 
being nominated, at least in these times, because of the smear campaign the Republicans will do. There is no Republican that is so toxic at this point that they can't get at least a hearing. But there are there are a lot of black and brown people who cannot meet this extra bar of having yeah. lived an angelic perfect life in order to be a federal judge it's a real it's a real unfairness in the system luckily there are quite a few uh, <laughs> minority candidates can do that i think kentaji brown jackson when her time comes i think she has led that as far as i can mm-hmm. uh, see she has led that kind of life there are others um who have so there are always people you can nominate but it's a different bar and it's unfair that's such a great point that the standard is completely different based entirely I on life, race and gender. All, all, all I got, I don't even have speeding. I got parking tickets. I don't even have speeding tickets though, right? I got non-moving violations. You can nominate me again. I was going to say, if, if, I'll give you a few minutes if you want to make your candidacy. Oh my God, known. please, please, please let Josh Hawley ask me a question. Please. I'm begging you, Joe. Just <laughs> Put me in, coach. uh, We do have to talk Supreme Court reform before the end of this because we've spent basically nothing but this podcast calling out the court. So point blank, how do do we fix it? Do you want the revenge argument or the reform argument? Let's go with reform. Okay, so here's why court expansion is reform, more so than revenge. Number one, can we not agree that the Senate confirmation process is broken? I mean, just like whatever we want to say, can we not yeah. agree that on both the Senate confirmation process is broken after what McConnell pulled with Merrick yeah. Garland? There is never a reason again in this life for a Democrat to vote for a Republican nominee. There just isn't. And we yeah. already know that Republicans will not vote for a Democratic nominee. Yeah. So right now we are in when a the work- process can be used for theft. Right? That's what it is. It is the, it's a means to an end. Right. So there, there are two ways to fix the Senate confirmation process. One is to incredibly nerf the power of the Supreme Court. That's hard to do without yep. either A, a constitutional amendment, because if you don't, the Supreme Court will say no to the yep. nerfing of its yep. power, and that's that, right? So the other way to do it is to simply massively expand the number of Supreme Court justices, because then while the Supreme Court as a institution will remain as powerful, each individual justice will be less powerful. Mm-hmm. So if you have, and I'm not, I mean, the, the, the plans that I hear are always, it's always Democrats like, you know, only negotiating from halfway, right? So I go, oh, we should have four because because there are 13 circuits and so we should have 13. No, no, no. We should have 20. We should have 40. I don't care. At the point where replacing a Supreme Court justice is rote, is like, you know, is like replacing your coffee filter, then yeah. the the individual power of each of these people is less. And then we can really get back to a Senate confirmation process that is just yeah. like, hey, do you have qualifications or not? Let's go. Right? Let so me ask you this, because like the obvious counter to that is a Supreme Court with 50 justices is untenable. Like it, it just would. Well, that's my question is like, I get that all the time is like if if Democrats add four seats, then Republicans are going to add four seats and we're going to end up with this mammoth Supreme Court of dozens and dozens of justices. And the assumption is that that's a bad thing. But let me ask you, like, what's wrong with a Supreme Court that has 50? So so I've got two answers to the tit for tat thing. One, how is tit for tat worse than where we are now? So if I say the Democrats add four seats, so you say, well, the Republicans will just add six seats and take back control. Okay, but Republicans have control right now. Like yeah. right now, if nothing happens right now, it is six, three for like the next 30 years. 
Yeah, so and we also have to make clear, like, Senator McConnell has said straight up he will not confirm, not confirm. a Biden nominee. So, like, right. he is fully prepared to steal another seat like six, with, without so, Democrats yeah. doing anything. So right, so I'm saying it's 6-3 for 30 years. It's 6-3 for 30 years if we're lucky, right? So if I say we're going to make it 7-6 and then the Republicans five years from now make it 11-7, like, how is that worse than what's happening right now? So that's my first answer. The second answer to this endlessly expanding court. So what? What do you mean? The California Ninth Circuit. Look, I always call it the California Court of Appeals. It's not the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals because there are lots of states out there, you know, west of the Sierra Nevadas. They're like, you know, Arizona or something, New Mexico. Anyway, the Ninth Circuit operates with 29 justices just fine. And that only uh, deals with part of the country. So we can have 29 justices. We can have 49 justices. Like, that could work. And the other thing, and this is what I what people don't always understand. Look, I want crazy lefty liberal decisions. I'm a lefty, right? I want right. some leftiness, right? But most people, they say they don't want crazy lefty decisions or crazy righty decisions. They want moderate decisions. Well, here's where court expansion is also court reform. Because if you want moderate decisions, the way to get those is to have more people. Uh, because you, more, with the Senate, right? The Senate is forced to the center because it has a hundred senators. The the analogy that I've made is think about like trying to figure out where you're gonna go for dinner, right? If you're gonna try to go for dinner with two of your boys, I mean you're gonna end up in some places, right? You're gonna end up at the club, you're gonna end up at some at some not nice yes. places, right? If you've got to organize dinner with like your for your family reunion and you gotta get 50 people to a restaurant, you're gonna end up at Applebee's. You're gonna, <laughs> yes. You're gonna end is. up at the Olive Garden. That's like, why yeah. those places exist is to be <laughs> the that's middle the, ground. That's what 50 people can agree upon, right? If right. you've got a 50, a 49 person court and you got to get 25 yeah. people to sign yeah. on to your opinion, just the extreme positions that yeah. you can't take extreme positions. You have to get really yeah. center mass. Yes, maybe center mass conservative versus center mass yeah. liberal, but you have to get center mass. There's um, also so a structural argument here that they, you, there's actually a problem with having such a small Supreme Court because you're giving so much power to one or two people, right? Well, like right it. now, the the power of the court really relies in like two justices who well, the, decide whether a decision is five four. Or maybe well, that six. well, this also goes back to my our earlier points about how overpowered the court is. If yeah. you're going to have a Supreme Court that can veto the other branches of government, yeah. that is a def- that it needs to be a, more than nine people, and he, and it needs to be representative, right? It cannot be there cannot be just one black person on your right. Supreme Court if the Supreme Court has this much power. There cannot be just one Latino person on your Supreme Court if the Supreme Court has to, has this much power. It's got there cannot be just two law schools yeah. represented. Now we've got we're up to three represented on your Supreme yeah. Court. The Supreme Court is going to have this much power over all American people. It has to be a bigger, more diverse, more racially and ethnically diverse, more geographically diverse, and more intellectually diverse court. It just has to be if it's going to continue to legitimately wield the power that it has. So again, when we yeah. talk about real life court expansion, again, we're not, see, adding four seats is legitimate in a revenge way. McConnell stole some, yeah. but like I can make that argument, right? But yeah. when you really want to talk about reforming this institution, we need way more as, as my, yeah. one of my favorite lines is from Kermit the Frog and Muppets Take Manhattan. We need more <laughs> dogs and bears and cats and chickens and things. We need yeah. more people in our show, not fewer. And to me, that's an honest legitimacy argument. 
that it's, you know, you have to fix the court, not just the politics of it. You actually have to fix the design of the court because right now it is so easily taken over. It is so easily manipulated that it's not actually a democratic institution. I think reform is such a good idea that I would be willing if I was president, which I'll note I'm not. I would go to Mitch and be like, we're adding 20 seats. Mm-hmm. If you give me the votes, we will split those 20 seats. Yeah. 12, eight. Now we're going to be 12, eight because you stole it from, you stole Mary Garland. That, that just can't, yeah. that, we can't have that. Right. But you know, we'll make it 12, eight. We'll make it 11, nine. Yeah. If you give me votes for it, if you don't give me votes for it, I will put 20 of my most fire breathing liberals that I can find. And you can yeah. spend the next decade trying to stop them. Go ahead. That's your choice, Mitch, right? Because honestly, if you give me 20 more justices, I can accept temporary Republican control of the court because it'd be temporary. Because over the course of people living and dying and falling and whatever, like who knows what the future would hold for that body. I would accept basically the current split of the court if Republicans would agree to give me 20 more justices because that's how much better the institution would work with more people. I completely agree. And I actually really appreciate that this is kind of where we're ending, which is on on the model of it. Of If you want a democratic country, you have to fix the court. And if you want the Supreme Court to be a democratically legitimate institution, you have to reform the court. So like everything leads to Supreme Court reform. That is the ballgame. <laughs> so we like to end our episodes uh, with a call to action. And I will say up front, the first call to action should be that everybody should read your book as soon as it comes out on March 1st. Um, but I'm going to give you a chance to do a broader call to action. For folks who have listened to this, who are energized, who are moved and convinced that the Supreme Court really needs to be where the action is, what do they do? Mondaire Jones has a bill in Congress right now to expand the court. Call your congressperson, call your senator, and ask them why they aren't supporting Mondaire Jones's bill. What about resources for folks who, who want to learn more about this? Is there a book? Is there an article? Is there a something? I, besides mine. Uh, <laughs> well, well, yours doesn't come out until March 1st. So for people who need to fill the month of February... Oh man, you know, honestly, they're they're just, you know, I I I do some work with Demand Justice. I think Demand Justice is is uh, it's a organization started by a former Clinton aide that's really kind of focused on trying to get expansion happening. I think they do a lot of good work, a lot of intellectual firepower in the very pro expansionist vein. But just for just for general like report like educate yourselves about what the court is doing every day, right? Read Mark Joseph Stern on Slate. Read Ian Milheiser on Vox. Read Kimberly Atkins. Like, you know, read the people who are, you know, read Zoe Tillman on BuzzFeed. She's a, a fantastic court reporter, mm-hmm. right? Like, read these people. Educate yourselves about what's actually happening. Because if you just watch the cable news, and if you just listen to mainstream media, they literally won't tell you about the rights and laws that are being taken away right under your feet by the yeah. current court. Yeah, track court news as as much as you track congressional news. Pro- really, probably read more of it, given that it's it has read, the, the courts blog, are right? changing your blog life. Is your is is all yep. nonpartisan? Read that. Just just understand what's happening. Care about the courts. Bottom line, because they are shaping your life, whether you pay attention or not. Ellie, 
I can't thank you enough for making the time to join me today for having this conversation. We will absolutely include a link to your upcoming book in our show notes. Uh, and I'll once again urge our listeners to follow you on social media and to check out your writing in the nation. Thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you missed our earlier episodes about Supreme Court reform and why courts matter, I encourage you to go back and check those out. Uh, And please recommend Broken Law to a friend so you can bring these important conversations to more listeners. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org. You can find details and show notes about today's episode on our website, which is acslaw.org. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. Mm